All right, good morning, everyone. All right, so it's good to be with you, but not really with you, but kind of with you. As we've said a couple times, this is a little weird. By the way, am I coming through on the, on the sound? Okay, cool. So uh, it's good to, to be able to get together in whatever way we can. Uh, it's also a little bit awkward talking to a predominantly empty room. And so as we're doing this, uh, if you're feeling weird at home, we're feeling weird here too, just so that everyone is aware. Uh, as I was thinking about just kind of how to deal with the awkwardness of all of this, I was remembering some of the old advice that they give about public speaking uh, to imagine that your audience is all in their underwear. And as I was thinking about that, I was realizing, for all I know, you could be. So uh, as we get started this morning, uh, just let's acknowledge it's awkward. Let's enjoy this, uh, though, and let's jump in together. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 10. As you're doing that, I want to talk about family resemblances. And family resemblances can be an awkward thing. They can be so weird sometimes. I remember when I was in uh, junior high, we found this picture of my older sister, Catherine, from when she was about seven. And what we found was that if we took our thumbs and we covered over her pigtails in that picture, it was indistinguishable from a picture of me when I was the same age. And as I was in junior high finding this picture where I that, looked that similar to my sister, I didn't think it was that great, honestly. It was a little irritating. But looking back, it's a fun story. And honestly, it's fun that uh, people can look at me or my siblings and instantly know that we're related because we share a family resemblance. And family resemblances can be a wonderful, wonderful thing. For instance, this one. I just love that you have, you have mother and son, and not only do they look kind of alike as babies, but they make that same little cheesy, silly grin. That's hilarious. I don't think there's any way that you can actually like plan that. That just happens, and it's amazing. Or this mother-daughter, and I love just seeing the, the similarity there. I mean, they look almost identical. Or there's the father-daughter one. I think this one's my favorite, just that mop of curly hair. Uh, those big teeth. It's just, it's adorable. Family resemblances can be such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so as we're looking at the text this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's going to draw out some family resemblances. He's going to look uh, at the Corinthians and he's going to talk about how they bear a family resemblance to their forefathers. So go ahead and look with me at 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. He starts off and he says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they were all baptized through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And so what we get here is that Paul's starting to draw a family portrait. He's going to give us a family picture. And what he's going to talk about is the Israelites. And one thing to look at there to start with that I think is really cool is that he's talking about the Israelites, but he's talking to the Corinthians as Gentiles. And he says, our ancestors. He's including them in that, that these stories are their stories. They're their family history. Because for us as people of God, this story of the Bible, it belongs to all of us. It's all of our family history. 
And so Paul's jumping in and he's talking about the Israelites and what they looked like. He's drawing us a family picture and he's showing that they were all under the cloud. And as we look at the text in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, what we see is that the cloud is God's presence going before his people, leading them as they wander through the wilderness. It's God's presence that comes down on the tabernacle and dwells among his people. They were all under the cloud. They all had God's presence with them. Similarly, they all passed through the sea. They all experienced God's saving power as God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea as he saved them from their enemies. They all experienced God's power as he saved them, and they were all baptized, he says. And Paul's kind of looking at this here, and he's talking about how they went through the sea and under the cloud. And there's this image of immersion in God's spirit being under the cloud and experiencing his saving power. Not only that, they all ate the same spiritual food, which reminds us of how they ate manna in the wilderness that God gave them. It reminds us uh, of how they all ate or drank the same spiritual drink when they drank from the water that God brought forth from the rock. When we look at this, we see what they looked like, what our family looks like. It's the dad picture. And then as we go here, we get the kid picture. Because we look at the Corinthians, and throughout the book of Corinthians, we've seen that they look a lot like this. For instance, Paul's talked about how they're all indwelt by God's Spirit. We saw back in chapter 3 how he talked about how they had God's Spirit in them. We see that again in chapter 6. We're going to see it again in chapter 12. Really, it's throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul talks a lot about this. Just like the, uh, the Israelites, we have that family resemblance. We're all under the cloud. We're all surrounded by God and his presence. Just like they passed through the sea and experienced God's saving power, we have experienced God's saving power. Paul calls all Christians, he says, that we are those who are being saved by God. Similarly to them, we experience God's saving power and we have been baptized. Uh, He says that they were baptized in the water as they went through the sea and under the cloud. And Paul says in chapter 12 that we were baptized by one spirit, we bear the family resemblance. And just like them, we eat and drink the same spiritual food and drink through communion. Paul's really showing us there's a lot of similarity between us and them. And up to this point, that seems like a really great thing to bear the family resemblance. But as we go on, it kind of takes a little bit of a turn. Look with me in the next verse. This is in verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Woof. That took a really dark turn. And it's getting a little bit, a little bit grim. Because Paul's seeing that the similarity between them takes another step. Because just as God wasn't pleased with them, the implication there is, how do you think God feels about most of you right now? 
And that might be a little startling to us. It might kind of take us off guard if we haven't been reading the book up to this point. But if we've read chapters 1 through 9, we see that just like the Israelites, just like they had some big family flaws, these Corinthians have some big flaws. They got some deep issues. And they're actually the same kinds of issues that the family has dealt with for generations. So go ahead and look with me in verse 6. It says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Man, this family resemblance took a really dark turn because we see that just like the Israelites who were killed for their idolatry, just like the Israelites who were killed for their sexual immorality and for grumbling against God and his prophet, these Corinthians, they bear the family resemblance because we've seen ever since chapter 8, verse 1, that they're toying with idolatry. Back in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning food sacrificed to idols. And that's really the main topic that he's been on ever since. Just like them, they're toying with idolatry. And just like them, they have sexual immorality among them. We saw that back in chapters 5 and 6, where Paul simply says, I've heard you have sexual immorality among you. And now he's bringing that out as something that the Israelites actually suffered. They actually were killed for. It's a big deal. And also we've seen that the Corinthians are grumblers because they've been grumbling against Paul and against the gospel that he preaches because they don't want a gospel that has suffering as a crucial part of it. These Corinthians, they bear the family resemblance, but that's not a positive thing. Why is Paul giving us all this, though? Let's check that out here in verse 11. He says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so we've got some great things here. One is that these things took place as an example for us. Paul wants us to learn from our family's history. He wants us to learn from our family's story so that we don't make these same kinds of mistakes. In fact, he says, that's what these are there for. Uh, this reminds me, actually, of a time that I heard Ray tell a story. And he was talking about uh, his kids, and he saw his kids playing around stuffing things up their noses when they were little. And he was trying to think of how to convey to his kids that shoving things up their nose is not a good idea. And so as he thought about it, he's like, you know, just telling them don't shove things up your nose is a great way to get them to shove things up their nose. I'll give them some family history. So he sits him down and he tells him, you know, your uncle used to put things up his nose. Yeah? Yeah. Sometimes when we'd be having spaghetti, he would take a spaghetti noodle 
and he would shove it up his nose and then he would cough it out his mouth and he'd kind of floss his nose with a spaghetti noodle. At which point the kids go, ew. And I'm with the kids. That is disgusting. (laughs) But he would floss his nose as a party trick. Well, one time he got this idea to do it and show it off, but he didn't have a spaghetti noodle around. So he goes to the pantry and what he did find was a little pinto bean. And a pinto bean is a little bit different than a spaghetti noodle, but he decided to try it. So he shoves it up his nose and and then, and nothing comes out. And so again, he goes, and he goes, and nothing comes out. At which point he starts trying to blow his nose and still nothing comes out. And so what does ha- what happens to a bean when you put it in a moist and warm environment? It expands and it grows and it gets stuck and lodged and starts to hurt. So he had to go to the doctor and they had to pull this bean out of his nose. And so the point he has is, kids, don't go putting things up your nose. And so as we're looking at this, I think this passage is similar. Paul's pulling out some family history and he says, guys, look at your ancestors. Look at, e- or look at Israel and what happened to them. Look at what happened to them when they fell into idolatry and sexual immorality. Look at what happened to them when they were grumbling. It didn't go well. And guys, we're not immune to these sins either. Paul says we should learn from this. Don't make the same mistakes that they did. Because guys, you're not immune and you're not going to escape God's judgment. We're not better than them. Just because we're doing, or they did these things, doesn't mean we should. In fact, that's the opposite point. And if we do them, we shouldn't expect a different result. But I love that he says that God always offers an escape from that temptation. He starts off this paragraph saying, these were written for our instruction. They're examples to us, to teach us. God doesn't want us to do these things, so he gives us passages of scripture to teach us the importance of serving him, following him faithfully. And not only that, but he gives a way out of temptation. I love that verse where he says that God will not allow us to be tempted more than we can bear. That is also probably one of the most taken out of context verses in the Bible. As I've heard it often said, God won't give you more than you could handle. That's not what this verse says. It says God won't allow us to be tempted more than we can bear. My experience is that God will often give us more than we can handle, but not more than he can handle. So when we look at this, we see God's heart, that he never traps his people in sin. He doesn't want us to fall into these things. He doesn't want to have to um, be the parent who pulls out the discipline. In fact, he does everything possible to make it so that that is not what happens. So as we look at it, he says that these are given for our instruction. And so what instruction, what do they teach us? They teach us, as he goes into 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which I give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation with the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. He's saying that when we take communion together, we are truly actually communicating our union with God, with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, in his body together. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a food sacrifice to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part both in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul says, guys, flee from idolatry. The whole point that he's making here, the whole reason he's highlighting the family history and the family resemblance is he's saying your family resemblance is showing. And look at where it led them. They fell into idolatry and look what happened to them. So take heed, flee from idolatry. He says, don't join yourself to an idol. He talks about how when we take communion, we are truly expressing our community with God, with Jesus, and with his people. If that's what we're doing when we take communion, why would we take part in the altar of a demon? We shouldn't be joining ourselves to that. More than that, we shouldn't be joining the members of Christ to an idol. He talks about how we are united with Christ, then why would we go and unite ourselves to an idol? And that's really a lot like the talk that he had back when he was talking about sexual immorality. When he said, flee from sexual immorality. And now he says, flee from idolatry. And he said, don't go and join the members of Christ to a prostitute. How much more should we not join the members of Christ to a demon in worshiping idols? We should flee from idolatry, run from it. And we should remember what happened to those who provoked the Lord's jealousy. It's playing with fire. And we all know the phrase, when you play with fire, what? You're going to get burned. So as an example, uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was little and we were camping. And this older kid told me, you know, it's really cool to throw gasoline in a fire. And already you know where this story is going. Because we've all heard the same kind of story, and we take heed. Well, this kid set me up with a cup, and we go and pour a cup of gasoline because some people had some boats who were in our group. And so I fill up a cup of gasoline, but I spilled it on my pant leg. And so I fill up a cup a second time, and I go and I throw it into the fire. And it was pretty cool, except that it also caught my pant leg on fire. And my pants came up and just burning and I'm running around. I ended up in the hospital with third degree burns on my leg. Because when we play with fire, we're going to get burned. And what Paul's saying here is that this idolatry stuff, you're playing with fire. 
you're going to get burned. It's not going to be pleasant. There are real consequences for this. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? As we think about it, we've had a lot of idols taken from us this week. We've had a lot of things that we really value, that we look to for our joy and our fulfillment, that we uh, get a sense of pleasure from, oftentimes even more than we do from God. And a lot of those things have been taken from us just this week. Some of those might include things like sports, having March Madness canceled, having baseball season indefinitely postponed for now, having relationships taken from us, the, the ability to interact with people face to face. For some of us, we might find that those people we have actually valued more than our relationship with God to where we're now uh, not able to interact with them and we feel awkward having time alone instead of feeling like we have the ability to connect with our Savior. Our self-image, our ability to put out the image of ourselves that we want people to see is severely reduced. The ability to uh, rely on our money for a lot of us is gone because a lot of us are out of work right now. The ability uh, to count on our constitutional rights or our self-sufficiency to think that we can make it here, that we have the power, we have the technology, the resources. We don't. We can't do it. Things are hard. Maybe the idol that's been taken from you is hobbies or recreational activities. Feeling like I can't do the things that I love to do, and if I can't do those things, it almost feels like life just stinks and it's not worth it right now. Maybe it's our security or our retirement. Maybe it's our health. Maybe as 21st century Americans, we're coming to realize that we've taken for granted this gift of health care and this gift of uh, wellness that we experience where we're at and we've idolized the gift rather than praising the gift giver. Maybe it's our comfort as our lives are just being upended. Whatever it is, there have been so many things that have been taken from us this week. So many idols that we have put in God's place for our satisfaction, our joy, our fulfillment. What do we do with that? Well, guys, we're commanded to flee from idolatry. So let's take those things and let's confess them to God and say, God, I'm realizing that this thing I have put in your place. Would you forgive me? Would you give me your grace? Would you help me to follow you? We can confess that to God and we can be confident in his forgiveness, in his love and his mercy. Because just like we saw God punish those of Israel who turned from him in idolatry and sexual sin, in the same way, we also saw his grace and his mercy for those who repent. That if we turn from our idolatry, if we turn from our sin, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he's bounding 
and steadfast love. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So we can confess that idolatry to God, and really we can thank him for removing it from our lives. Because as we're looking at it, we've talked about a number of things that have been taken from us. We didn't even have to do anything to uproot those things. In a lot of ways, it is a mercy of God that some of those things have been removed from our lives. We can thank him for that. That God has used a bad situation to work some good for us. We can thank God for his love and his grace that he offers a way out of that temptation, out of that sin and idolatry. And we can use our extra time that we have to build our relationship with God. And here it's kind of the positive side of the negative truth. The negative truth that we should flee from idolatry, turn from something, but let's also turn to God. Let's turn to him in worship. Let's turn to him in prayer, in reading his word, in getting to know him more fully. Let's take this opportunity to not only turn away from these things that we've idolized, but let's turn towards Christ and grow in our relationship with him. Set a goal for yourself of maybe reading the Bible 10 minutes a day, maybe praying 10 minutes a day, connecting with God. Spend some time listening to God, getting to hear and know his voice. Let's get to know him and serve him with the extra time that we have. As we've been looking at the the text, really ever since chapter 8, verse 1, Paul's been on this idea of food sacrifice to idols. He's been talking about that thus far. And we've seen that he's given us some really good principles to live by. And the first of those we saw is that, yeah, he conceded that the, um, the Corinthians were saying, you know, I can do whatever I want. It's, it's just food. We all have knowledge. We all know that it's nothing. We can just eat it. And Paul says, yeah, it's just food, and you're free to eat it. However, we should sometimes give up our freedoms And in chapter 8, he was saying that we should sometimes give up our freedoms so that we don't lead others into sin, so that we don't lead our Christian brothers and sisters into the sin of idolatry through our actions. And then in chapter 9, he says that we should sometimes give up our freedoms so that we can lead other people who don't yet know Christ to the gospel, to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, which we can't do if what they're seeing in our lives is idolatry if they're seeing us eat meat sacrificed to idols, if they're seeing us interacting with these idols, then they're going to think that's okay. They're never going to come to know Christ and what faithfulness to him looks like. So yeah, it's just food and you're free to eat it. But sometimes we should give up our freedoms. And above all, we should flee from idolatry. This is not something to play with. It's live ammunition. Don't mess around with it. So these are the principles to live by. Well, as we come here, Paul's going to sum those up, and then he's going to give us some really good practical advice for what this looks like in practice. So let's go ahead and look at verse 23. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, 
but the good of others. That's really a good summary to everything he's been saying thus far. Yeah, sure, you have the right to do this, but think about other people. That's really what it comes down to is they're saying that we can do whatever we want. And Paul says, yeah, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Consider others above yourself. And he's going to give us some specifics of what that principle looks like in practice. So let's pick up in 25. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So he's saying to them, if you're you know, out shopping and people are selling meat and all you know about it is it's just meat? Cool. Principle to live by? It's just food. Feel free to eat it. Go for it. However, he then says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience because it's just food. Eat it. But if someone says to you, it has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. Paul's saying, if you're out to eat at someone's house and they're giving you some food, if all you know is that it's just food, cool, eat up. But if someone says, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't do it. The principles to live by there are that we should give up our freedoms so that we don't lead others into sin and so that we can lead others to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, demonstrating faithfulness to him. And also that we should flee from idolatry. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. Finally, he's going to give us some concluding thoughts. And he's going to start off here in 29b. And he says, For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? And there's a lot of disagreement on these couple of verses in particular. But here's how I take them. I take them to be a Corinthian quote. Because we've seen throughout the book that there's a lot of times when Paul will go back and he'll give quotes of what the Corinthians' argument is. In fact, he did that just a couple verses ago when he quoted them saying, I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, yeah, but consider other people. And here, their argument is much the same. Why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Basically, their argument comes down to their saying, Paul, why does someone else get to determine what I'm free to do and not? Why do they get to decide? I know that it's just food. Isn't that good enough? But again, Paul's going to give his response. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So they want to know, Paul, why is my freedom being judged by someone else? And Paul's answer 
It's basically that because Christ gave up his freedoms for you so that you could be saved. Because Paul, Paul's saying, Christ did that for all of us. I've done that for you. So now, do that for one another. Give up your freedoms so that you don't cause anyone to fall into sin. The main idea, really, in chapters 8 through 10, all comes down to the fact that we should imitate Christ by giving up our freedoms so that others may be saved. There are plenty of things that we might be free to do, but let's put others ahead of ourselves. Let's give up our own self-interest so that other people might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and know what, what faithfulness looks like to him. So what does that look like? How can we do that? Especially how can we do that in a world where we're not even free to interact with one another face to face? How do we give up our rights for one another? One thing right now, that'd be social distancing. And I'm saying that as someone who has a vehement dislike for the phrase social distancing. I'm just going to say that. I, I have come to dislike it with a fiery passion that burns with the heat of a thousand suns. It, it, it is just, I don't like it. And yet, that might actually be one of the more loving things we can do for people. It might be one of the more loving things we can do, especially for those who are vulnerable. That, yeah, maybe I'm free to go around and do as much as I want and keep on living as normally as I want. But just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should. And we really should consider other people. And that's been something that I've been uh, struck with this week, that it can be really easy sometimes during situations like this to have hard hearts, to have selfish hearts, to have hearts that really uh, just want to do what we want to do. But guys, Jesus gave up his rights for us. He gave up his health for us. He gave up, he gave up everything, his life for us. We can give up a little bit of our life to help other people to stay healthy and safe. That might be one way. Another might be connecting with people through irregular means. A lot of us don't like interacting with people through things like the phone or the internet. I know a lot of people who just absolutely hate having phone conversations or who really despise doing like Skype thing. Is Skype even a thing anymore? Okay, so they're nodding that Skype is a thing. I've never used Skype. So I'm one of these people, okay? Like it can really be difficult to put aside our own either technological lack of knowledge or to put aside our discomfort with doing things like this. But guys, we can put aside our own self-interest by connecting with others through ways that we normally wouldn't because that's what we're given. And maybe that's what people need. That we have a number of people, even in our church, who are shut in, who don't have people there. We can reach out to them in whatever ways we can. Shoot them a text. Give them a phone call. Contact people through chat or through Skype or whatever. Let's be giving up our own self-interest 
by doing some things that are outside of our comfort zone for the sake of one another. We can also use our increased time to care for others. Like, uh, like we talked about, a lot of our idols, a lot of our hobbies, a lot of the things that occupy our time are taken from us right now. And so we can use that time to pray for each other. We can pray not only for one another, but with one another. Give someone a call. Ask them, how can I pray for you today? And just pray with them on the phone. Shoot people messages. Ask how you can pray for them. And really do that. This is a time when we can build community in different ways. And we can do that actually really powerfully because we're given this gift of more time. And so we can set aside our self-interest by not doing things that we necessarily want to do. Maybe what we want to do is look around on Facebook, surf the internet, do whatever. Maybe let's give up some of our self-interest by actually putting others ahead of ourselves taking some time to pray with each other, or maybe get groceries for those who can't, or share what we have with those who don't. These are some great ways that we can love other people, that we can be Christ to the world, even when we're not able to interact with people directly. I bet there's a lot of people out there who would just feel incredibly loved, even if they never see your face, by the fact that you care enough to bring them something to give them something, to share with them. These are ways that we can be the body of Christ, that we can be Christ's presence to the world even when things are difficult and out of the ordinary. Finally, we can share the gospel. Even as we're shut in our homes, we still have the ability to share the gospel with those around us through social media, through uh, the internet, through all these other different technological means God has given us avenues to be able to communicate his message, his good news to the world. And what better time for the world to have good news than right now, when everyone is constantly being addressed by bad news over and over and over. And not only that, but we're at a time when people are being confronted by death daily as they're looking on their TVs, as they're looking on the internet, they're seeing it everywhere. Guys, we have the words of life in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let this be a, a reminder of the urgency of that message. And let's re-gift it to the world. As we look at what Jesus did for us, he gave up everything so that we could be saved. Let's give up some of our own comfort our rights, our self-interest. And let's re-gift what Jesus gave us and give that kind of message to the world. Father, we pray that this week that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to serve you with joy, with reverence. Father, we pray that we would, that we would find joy in new ways, in experiencing you in new ways. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us um, courage and boldness to share your gospel with those around us who need it. We thank you so much for the love that you have shown us, and we pray that you would help us to show that same love to the world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.